Well, good morning. When, uh, when Roger first announced that he was going to be leaving on sabbatical and that I was going to be preaching a four-week series on the doctrine of Trinity, a number of people came up to me and started asking me one of two questions. The first question they asked was, Michael, if you're preaching on the doctrine of Trinity, then why is it four weeks long? You do know that there's three divine persons in the Trinity, right? And the answer is yes, I know. Okay, so thank you for checking though. And the second question I got asked quite a bit is, why are you choosing to preach on the doctrine of Trinity? I mean, that seems like kind of an ambitious topic. And that is actually a good question. And that is one I've actually asked myself and my wife a few times over the past month as I've been preparing for this series. But it's a worthy question to answer because it leads us to what we're going to talk about this morning. And it's connected to really my life experience. So to answer it, I've got to give you a window into my soul for just a minute. I, uh, I really started following the Lord when I was about 16 years old. I grew up in an Episcopal church here in town, and I went every Sunday. But when I was 16, I was at a Young Life camp, and the gospel really penetrated my heart. And for the first time, it really clicked. It really made sense to me. And I, I'm now 33. So as I look back over the last 17 years of my life where I've really tried to follow Christ... There are a variety of things that have really played a, a role, or a significant role in my spiritual development. You know, for one, I would say men pouring into me. So I've been discipled and invested in by a number of men, and that has really changed my life. Guys like Sean Hughes, guys like Brett Rogers, guys like Roger Poupart, who've taken an interest in me and invested in me, and I'm different because of that, and I'm so grateful. Um, another aspect would be just falling in love with the Scriptures. Just really coming to see the Word of God as, as something that is worthy of my time. And I know many of you feel the same way. and You've been transformed as you have read God's Word. And then obviously being married and having kids, those are game changers, right? And uh, that's had a huge impact on me spiritually. But along those lines, something that has radically shaped my life and my view of God is coming to understand the doctrine of Trinity as the center of everything. I'd always affirmed the Trinity. I'd always believed the Trinity. But when I truly began to study the Trinity, my life changed. And my whole view of God changed. And my experience of God changed. And it really deepened my love for Him. And yet I know that not everyone shares my sympathies. I was going back through some of my seminary reading about the Trinity, and I came upon a, a writing by Immanuel Kant, the famous 18th century German philosopher who is really the most influential philosopher of the last few hundred years within philosophy and even touches theology. And Kant writes these words about the Trinity. He says, Taken literally, absolutely nothing worthwhile for the practical life can be made out of the doctrine of Trinity. He says, nothing worthwhile for the practical life can be made out of the doctrine of Trinity. And what's sad is I think a number of Christians have unknowingly followed Kant's lead and have 
ended up viewing the Trinity as some doctrine that they weakly affirmed, that they're kind of embarrassed about. And so they sheepishly kind of affirm the Trinity, but in reality, they see no practical value in it. And I think that is tragic. That is tragic, and I could not disagree more. And that is why when I had the opportunity to pick something to preach on, I said, I want to spend four weeks on the doctrine of Trinity. Because even though we're just doing the tip of the iceberg these four weeks, I wanted all of us together to get a deeper understanding of who God is in Trinity. And not only transform us and transform how we love Him and experience God, but as we come to see that really God is at the center of everything and God exists in Trinity. And so the Trinity has great practical value for our life. And so here we are in our fourth message of a four-part series on the doctrine of Trinity. If you've been with us from the beginning, you know that we started out in week one by talking about what is the doctrine of Trinity. How we believe in one God who eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, identical in nature, distinct but harmonious in function. And then we talked about why we believe in the doctrine of Trinity. We said because of the person of Christ and the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. And then we said, how did this doctrine develop in the early church? And we said, carefully, as they developed language and concepts to explain the biblical truth of Trinity, culminating in the Nicene Creed in 325 A.D. Came back week two, we talked about the Trinity specifically within salvation and the roles of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within God's great act of redemption as the Father sins and the Son is the sacrifice and the Spirit seals. Then in week three, last week, we talked about what it means to be made in the image of God and how we as his image bearers both derive our value from God and both also find our function, how we are to function by who God is in Trinity. And that brings us to this morning. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about how the Trinity answers all the questions of life or the big questions of life are answered really by the Trinity. And then we're going to close the series with a call to Trinitarian worship. So this morning is going to be about a Trinitarian worldview and then ultimately Trinitarian worship. Now we've been developing a Trinitarian worldview throughout the course of this entire series. But I want to take some time this morning to specifically address two questions that are kind of the, the big philosophical existential questions of life that all humans must deal with. These are not some questions for hippies, right? These are questions that believers and non-believers alike must come to grips with. And the first question is this. Why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why does existence even, how, how is that possible? And why did that happen? And then number two, what is the purpose of life? So why does something exist instead of nothing? And then why do we exist as something instead of nothing? What is our purpose? And I believe both questions are answered by the Trinity. So why is there something instead of nothing? Why does anything exist? Well, philosophers and theologians and scientists have really tried to answer this one of three ways. One of three ways. The first solution people have given is that the universe is eternal. Kind of platonic thought. That, this is, that the universe is infinite. So there was never a time where the universe did not exist, except that goes against all the data we have from science that says that the universe had a beginning. The second theory is to say that everything miraculously appeared out of nothing. 
So nothing existed, and then miraculously, everything came into existence. The universe, and including ourselves. The problem with that view is how can everything come from nothing? What does nothing produce? Nothing. How can nothing produce everything? And not only that, how can an impersonal, amoral, purposeless, and meaningless universe accidentally create beings that are full of personality, morals, meaning, and purpose? The third answer to the question of why something exists instead of nothing is that a divine creator created it out of nothing. What theologians call ex nihilo. That God created the universe out of nothing. And this view makes the most sense to me. A view that says that the beauty and order and majesty and the sense of morality and personhood and love that is present in creation is real and was created by an intelligent being. Now that being said, even if one subscribes to intelligent design that does not make one a Christian, nor does that tell us why God created. It doesn't tell us why He created. So why did God create? Well, once again, I believe the Trinity sheds light on this. But to talk about this, we have to go back in time before creation happened. So this is before creation. We talked a little bit about this last week. Before God created, He was all that existed. And He was alone. And yet He was not alone because God exists in Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in divine community. And because God exists in Trinity, and because God is God, He did not need to create. That's important to recognize. God did not need to create. He has everything He needs within Himself. We see this articulated in texts like Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, where Luke writes, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. I have two sons. I have a four-year-old named Elijah and a two-year-old named Luke. And for the most part, they like playing together. For the most part. But Luke, my two-year-old, still takes naps for the most part. Okay? So when he takes a nap, a nap, if I'm at home, Elijah will typically come to me and he'll say, Dad, will you play with me? And this typically involves Legos. And sometimes I will say yes, but sometimes I will say no. And the times that I say no, Elijah has been known to cry and then say, I don't have anybody to play with. I need somebody to play with me. If that is your view of why God created, that he needed someone to play with, that is a terrible view. That is a terrible view. He is not looking for someone to play with. God needs nothing from us. And I find this truth really interesting because here's what I realize. What I realize is that I am not that important. I'm really not that important. God does not need me. I am unnecessary. I'm unnecessary. And so are you. Now we may think that's kind of depressing. But it's not. It's not depressing at all. 
Because here's the deal. Though God didn't need to create me, He chose to. He didn't need to create me. He chose to create us. So we don't exist out of necessity. We exist by His grace. And that immediately transforms my view of God as in, from one that says, me telling God, hey, you need to do this for me to a spirit of humility and gratitude where I'm thankful for every breath He has given me. Because it is all by His grace. And I'm reminded that we cannot have an accurate view of God and consistently be people that lack gratitude. That will not work. Because the very brain we're using to think that exists by the grace of God. So we exist because of God's grace, but still that doesn't answer why. So what does Scripture say as to why He created when I look at Scripture, I see two major reasons for why God created. Number one is for His glory. God created for His glory. Scripture really makes that clear throughout. You can go to a number of places, including Isaiah 43, as Isaiah is prophesying the regathering of the people of Israel. And he writes, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Psalm 19 begins, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Scripture makes clear that the heavens, the earth, and the people inside it, that all things exist for the glory of God. And as we spoke about last week, this is not a selfish glory of God, but this is a shared glory that exists within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as they seek to give of themselves to one another, and as they seek to honor one another, and as they seek to bring glory to one another. So one way you can say it is they selfishly desire glory for one another. So something exists instead of nothing because God freely chose to create, and He freely chose to create, number one, for His glory. The second reason... God chose to create, which is clear, though less explicit in Scripture, is because God is a personal God who exists eternal in relationship, and He wants to share that in creation. He wants to share who He is with creation, and He desires relationships with His creation, and He desires these relationships not because He has to, but because He wants to. He chooses to. If he didn't need to create us, and yet he did, and he didn't need to save us, and yet he did, then I think that says a little bit about, he, about how he feels about us and why you and I were ultimately created. And this is truly amazing. Think about this. That the God of the universe who created everything created us for his pleasure so that we would have the pleasure of knowing him and entering into relationship with him and in the process bring him immense glory. And once again, this is an area where we reflect God as our maker because we do the exact same thing, don't we? Whether it be a book or a movie or a song or maybe a musical band called U2, whatever the case may be, when there's something that we love and that we have an amazing experience with, what do we do? We go to share that with people. 
We invite people in on that experience to share with us. Our joy is amplified. Our joy is fulfilled when we share that with one another. Think about your time here at Wayside. Whether that's been weeks or months or years, hopefully this has been a place where you have been blessed and where you have had the opportunity to bless others. And because of that, what do we do? We seek to engage people and invite them in to become a part of our community because we believe in what is happening here. We reach out in an effort to bring in because we are excited about what God is doing. That is how we respond. We share our joy and our enthusiasm. We don't say, you know what? God is moving. Lives are changing. The gospel is penetrating. Therefore, we need to lock the doors. We need to keep people out. We need to keep this for ourselves and not let anybody share in what's going on in here because we don't want our holy huddle to be interrupted by other people. That's not what we do. And when you think about God, He is the real holy huddle. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He needs nothing from us. Nothing. He's completely self-sufficient. And yet, what does He do? Does He just stay and say, we got it good? No. He creates. He creates. He reaches out. And then He invites His creation in to be a part of the community so that they can experience the joy of a relationship with God. And that is not something that God has to do. It's something that He freely chooses to do. And don't miss the significance of that. For when God created, think about this, when God created... It was the first time anything existed external to himself. So when God created, this is the first instance where something exists that is not God. We are not pantheist. We don't believe God is in the tree or the rock. That is a creation of God. And not only that, when he created angels and when he created humanity, he created moral creatures who make real choices, and now for the first time, there is potential for sin and for evil. That becomes real for the first time. And yet, God, who knows this, still chose to create. So in regards to our question of why there's something instead of nothing, here's our answer. Because God, who exists eternally in Trinity, created us to share in relationship with us, allowing us to know Him and know the divine community of God, and in the process, bring Him glory. The second question we were going to talk about was, what is the purpose of life? So why do we exist? And the answer is essentially the same, right? Because our purpose is derived from His purpose. Our purpose is in line with the purpose of God and is to be in relationship with Him and to bring Him glory. As the Westminster Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That is why we exist. We exist to enjoy relationship with God and then we exist to glorify God. 
That is why you are here, and that is why I am here. But there's a problem, right? We've got a problem. And the problem is that the very relationship that we were created to experience has been severed due to our sin and our rebellion against God. We have chosen to go a different path. And because of that, God, who is holy, cannot function in relationship with us. And the relationship for which we were created is untenable because of our sin. We who were created in the image of God to bring glory to God through a relationship with God, as Romans 1 says, we professed to be wise, but we became fools. And we exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of corruptible man. That we came to worship the creation instead of the creator, and we severed our relationship with God. And because of that, we were separated. And so then the million-dollar question comes, right? Who wants to be a millionaire? Here's the million-dollar question. How can God be reconciled to us? How can we be reconciled to God in a relationship that we were created to exist in when we have severed that because of our sin? God seems to be stuck in the proverbial rock in the hard place, doesn't He? Because here's what He can do. He can punish sin... And judge sin and therefore forsake the relationship he has with his creation. Or he can keep his relationship with creation but overlook sin and therefore no longer be holy. So he's in a rock in a hard place so to speak. What is he going to do? How can God be holy and loving? How can God judge sin and yet, and, and create, and yet restore his creation to himself in a loving relationship? And look, I know God exists outside of time, but work with me here. He knew what was going on. But how can he do that? You, ne- you may have never thought about this before, but he can do this because he exists in Trinity. He can do this because he exists in Trinity. If God were monopersonal, If he was one person, he could not do this. That is why Allah, if you study Islam, Allah and Muslims are monotheist, but Allah is monopersonal. He's one person. So Allah is sovereign, but he is not forgiving. He is not loving. That's why if you talk to a Muslim, what will they always say? If Allah wills. If Allah wills. So there's no salvation Apart from just God, from Allah's sovereign choice. They don't even know if Muhammad is saved. So it's completely dependent upon if Allah wills and it becomes a major works-based religion. But because our God is tri-personal, he can judge sin, show divine love, and restore us to himself at the same time. I want to take you to a text real fast that you've probably read a hundred times, but you maybe never have looked at it through a Trinitarian lens. And that's Romans 3, 23 through 26. Put them on the screen right here. Romans 3, 23, I imagine you've heard before. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's that saying? It's saying that we're all in the same boat, no matter who you are, no matter how righteous your deeds are. They're filthy rags. They were all sinners. Because of that, we all deserve judgment and we're all in the same boat. Period. That's what verse 23 says. Look at verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So it's saying we've been justified. We've been saved as a gift. It is a gift that was given to us by grace and it's centered 
on the person of Christ Jesus and his work on the cross. That's verse 24. Now let's go to verse 25. It's kind of wordy, but hang with me. It says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. What that verse is saying is sin had to be dealt with. Sin had to ultimately be dealt with and Jesus dealt with it. And in the process, he declares, he shows God's righteousness. So verse 25 says that sin had to be dealt with. The credit card payment was due and Jesus paid it on the cross. Now look at verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier. So he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at that verse. He's just and he's the justifier. God is just because he judges sin. God is the justifier because he is also the payment of sin. You follow me? He's just because he judges it, but he's also the justifier because he's the one who pays it. Now think about the Trinity. God the Father rightfully punishes sin, showing his righteousness. God the Son comes and he's the justifier because he pays the penalty of sin. He pays the penalty of sin. And then, it, and then we are justified by the Holy Spirit as He energizes us and brings us to faith, freeing us from the penalty of sin. So as the Father punishes sin, and the Son is the payment of sin, and then the Spirit moves and brings us to faith, which frees us from the penalty of sin. It's, a tri- it's the miracle of the cross. And it's the activity of the Trinity. And it's only possible because our God is triune. So ultimately, the cross demonstrates the holiness of God and the cross demonstrates the love of God. And the reason the cross can do that is because our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's tripersonal. Salvation by grace is unique to Christianity because the Trinity is unique to Christianity. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. So we exist by the grace of God created to be in relationship with Him, and in the process bring Him glory. And though we severed that relationship, Jesus paid for the sin on the cross and enables us to now be restored to God by faith in Christ, to which then we become trophies of God's grace. We get to glorify Him through obedience on this earth as He has given us our justification, our down payment for our salvation, that is ultimately future when we enter into glorification and spend eternity with God. That is why something exists instead of nothing. And that is why you and I exist. And I think it's marvelous. It's just marvelous. So with that being said, how should we worship this God? Because if you recall back in week one, I said one of the goals of this series is not to fill our minds with knowledge, but it's to fill our hearts with praise. And it's to fill our hearts with worship for this God. So this one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how do we do that? I know we know how to to live with the Trinitarian worldview, but how do we engage in consistent Trinitarian worship? And I'm going to give you four things, four ways in which we engage in consistent Trinitarian worship. The first way... Trinitarian worship begins by acknowledging each divine person. 
we acknowledge each divine person. We seek to worship God through the acknowledgement of each divine person within the Trinity. So we acknowledge the Father, the one often referred to as the Holy Other. And we, and we acknowledge the unique relationship that we have to the Father, which is one where we come to Him in godly fear and reverence, for He is holy and He is righteous and He is our Father. And at the same time, we come, we come to Him as adopted sons and adopted daughters of God, purchased by the blood of Christ and are thus pleasing and welcoming in the sight of the Father. And we acknowledge Him as the architect of the grand plan of redemption, the leader within the Trinity. He is our Father who art in heaven and He is worthy to be praised. We also acknowledge the Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and we worship Him as the cornerstone of our Trinitarian faith. Jesus acts as the bridge from man to God and from God to man. He is our mediator. As 1 Timothy 2.5 states, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is our brother, the second member of the eternal Trinity, who took on flesh, died for our sins, physically rose from the grave. And it is because Christ sacrificed on the cross for the sins of me and you, for all sins of the world, that we may enjoy fellowship in a restored relationship to God. And it is also Jesus that we find our model for humanity. Jesus not only shows mankind who God is, but Jesus shows mankind who mankind is in the incarnation. He is the picture of perfect humanity. He is Jesus Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he is worthy to be praised. We also acknowledge the Holy Spirit As the Nicene Creed says, the Spirit, the giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. We worship the Spirit by acknowledging the work of the Spirit. And we do that by the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the divine person that both brings us to faith and then energizes our faith. And we recognize that our worship of God that culminates with God the Father travels through the Son is actually energized and actualized by God the Spirit. So number one, we acknowledge each person. Number two, we affirm revealed truth. We affirm revealed truth. This has got a fancy word. It's called cataphatic worship. It's where we get the word catechism, which just means content. So this is the content of our faith. This is our doctrine. We worship God through doctrine. We worship God by affirming who he is and what he is like through the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. This type of worship emphasizes God by affirming who he is and what he's like. So Wayside's doctrinal statement is worship. The Nicene Creed is worship as we affirm the revealed truth about who God is. So number one, we acknowledge each person. Number two, we affirm revealed truth. Number three, we admit that mystery remains. We admit that mystery remains. This is known as apophatic worship. So while doctrine affirms revealed truth, apophatic worship keeps mystery where it belongs. Because we do not know all there is to know about God. This type of worship emphasizes that mystery. And and, and reminds us that while our knowledge of God is sufficient, it's not exhaustive. 
While our knowledge of God is sufficient, it is not exhaustive. And the Trinity is a wonderful example of that. There's much we can say about who God is in Trinity, and that's what we've been doing the last four weeks. And at the same time, there's much that remains a mystery. Amen? There's much that remains beyond us, and God will forever be beyond us. He will forever be beyond us. So we admit that mystery remains. And so as you think about these two types of worship, one illustrating what we affirm and one illustrating that we admit mystery, it keeps us from running off the road on either side, right? Because you don't want to go to either extreme. You don't want to come to a place where you say, I know everything there is to know about God. What a ridiculous statement. What an arrogant statement. God does not fit in your box. He doesn't fit. Okay? And so we cannot come to that place where we say, I know everything there is to know about God. And on the flip side, we don't, we're not people who say, I know nothing about God. I think maybe this, but I don't know. No, we do know stuff about God. We absolutely know about God. And so you don't want to run off the rails on either side. The truth is we know what God has chosen to reveal. We know what God has chosen to reveal, and what God has revealed is sufficient and accurate to who He is, but it's not exhaustive of who He is. I think that's an important distinction to keep in mind. So we acknowledge each person, we affirm God's revealed truth, we admit mystery, and then we adore Him through worship, and we adore in relationship. This is the devotional and experiential aspect of our worship, where we experience God. And once again, we need to be weary of two extremes, don't we? Because we live in a day and age where experience is the height of everything. And emotion is what drives so many people. And that has found its way into the church, which is problematic. Because when we worship God, it's not about us. It's about God. So the focus shouldn't be on how we feel. And what our emotion is. And at the same time, we should not devalue or dismiss emotion and experience as if it's something that's foreign to the Christian life. Because that would be incorrect. And, and, and turn the Christian life into an intellectual exercise. That's not what God's looking for. Because we are called to experience God and Trinity through a relationship. As we have discussed, this is why you and I exist. And if we're created to be in relationship with God, certainly part of that relationship involves experiencing communion with God. As we are overwhelmed by His goodness and by His grace and by His love and by His holiness and by His majesty and we are transformed by Him. We adore Him as we experience Him and as we experience Him, we are transformed by Him. And as we are transformed by Him, we become the people that we were created to be. As Samuel Kierkegaard said, he's got a quote that I love in regards to this. He said, Now with God's help, I shall become myself. Now with God's help, I shall become myself. So we worship God by acknowledging each person of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We acknowledge, we we worship God by affirming God's revealed truth about who He is through our study of the Scriptures, through our doctrine. We worship God as we admit that mystery remains. And while we know much about God, there's still much that we do not know. And so where God, where we find mystery, where God leaves mystery, we affirm that and we leave it as well. 
And lastly, we worship through adoration as we engage emotionally and experientially with the triune God who indwells us and helps us to fulfill the very purpose for which we exist, which is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Well, I, uh, so Monday night, I was walking in the park at home. I was walking with my two-year-old son, Luke, and I was thinking, how am I going to finish this series? You know, should I use a quote? Should I use a song? Should I have a story? So I'm walking Luke in this little red wagon deal, and I'm talking to him. I'm like, Luke, what do you think? And he says, Daddy, keys, because he loves keys. And I'm like, Luke, that doesn't help. Need a little bit more insight? Come on. I'm like, what should I do, Luke? And so I'm walking around the park, and I just think of the Apostle Paul. And I think of Paul as he writes the Corinthian church, a church that he wrote a lot to. And in the last few verses of the last letter, he writes to the Corinthian church. This is what he says. And as I was walking around the park, I was like, yes, thank you, Luke. (laughs) But more thank you, God, right? But here's what Paul writes. And so I just want us to finish this morning. Just listen to these words, and then I'll pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Paul writes, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we just come before you in total reverence and gratitude as we think about the holiness and the greatness of who you are and as we think about existence even itself that you have given us brains to even contemplate you i'm just i'm just amazed by your word god where it says that you needed nothing and yet you freely chose to create and when i look in the mirror what i see is a person who i'm confused why you created and yet you say no you are worth it i love you I created you. I came to save you. I want to be in relationship with you. It's just unfathomable, God. May we continue to be reminded how indebted we are to you for everything. For every breath, for every day, for every laugh, for every tear, for every hug. We are completely indebted to you because we exist completely by your grace. Thank you, God, for being who you are. Thank you for being loving and holy. Thank you for saving us. Father, thank you for sending the Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for willingly going to the cross and dying for our sins. Holy Spirit, thank you for sealing us and indwelling us and empowering us to live out our faith and bring glory to you, God, as your trophy of grace and as someone who sings your praise. May we be people that are not just informed about the Scriptures, but transformed by the goodness of God. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your study and for your word and for the chance to to know you. And God, I pray if there's anybody in here who has never 
taken that step of faith, never received that free gift that Romans 3 was talking about that comes by grace through Christ Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, I pray that they for the first time would see you for who you really are. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who created them to be in relationship with them. And even when we forsook that relationship, you built the bridge and you come to bring us home. And we praise you. Thank you, God. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got prayer partners up here who would love to chat with you. They'd love to talk with you. So would I. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. For you VBS helpers, thank you so much. We'll see you this week. The rest of you all have a great day.